Welcome to the Code French podcast. This is episode three, and we continue with our conversation with Robert Shear. I, 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 I don't think I don't think intentions matter at all, and they certainly don't matter to powerful politicians who are only powerful. Because other people with power and money and influence trust them to do the things that will improve their power and wealth, but also keep enough stability in the society so we don't have chaos. After all, that's why we have a political system. The founding fathers set up a very limited federal system. It's grown, obviously, in importance. But they embraced the notion of government beyond the states uh, on the grounds that it was needed to preserve tranquility, uh, order, and uh, that it had to have some muscle behind that, and that they had to pay attention to ordinary people to some degree, or they would be like the King of England, who lost control of the colonies because he wasn't paying attention to ordinary people. So we have, for that reason, we have the Bill of Rights, and there were some good folks around, like Tom Paine and you know, Sam Adams, to remind them uh, that they have to do that. You know, so we tacked on these Bill of Rights. But the issue really is not about intentions. Uh, we know that from the German experience, right? It's what Hannah Arendt referred to as the banality of evil. We know that many people. You can make a caricature of German fascism with this funny-looking Hitler, like a funny-looking Trump and his manners and everything. But Hitler's rise to power was made possible only because uh, people who presented as much more reasonable and solid and thoughtful and civilized backed him. And they increasingly backed him when they saw the progressive left forces getting stronger and they thought they would lose some of their wealth and power to the social democrats or the communists. That's the story of what happened in Germany. And when Hannah Arendt wrote about the banality of evil, most of the evil in Germany was conducted by good Germans who kept records of how much gold they took out of the mouths of Jews and other people in their fillings. Uh, they kept documented everything. Uh, they rationalized everything. They justified everything. That's what the Eichmann trial was such a vivid display of that Hannah Arendt covered. The liberal class that Chris Hedges has written about so brilliantly, they exhibit the banality of evil in spades. You know, yes, they didn't like Guantanamo, but they didn't close down Guantanamo under Obama, even though he promised it. Yes, they find revelations of torture to be an embarrassment, But after all, uh, Colin Powell, a man I have a lot of respect for, was in the chain of command that knew that the genocide of Milai had happened. There were plenty of people who knew we were torturing people later in Guantanamo or, uh, or Abu Ghraib who looked the other way. You have poor Julian Assange, Chelsea Manning, who revealed our war crimes being tortured uh, equally by Democratic and Republican administrations. Uh, you know, and uh, because they dare tell the truth, or uh, Edward Snowden is in refuge in in Russia, 
which we demonize, and he's called a traitor uh, by people like Hillary Clinton and Dianne Feinstein. So a liberal affectation is not no guard. And no, it's not only not a guard against uh, evil and criminality and corruption, it's an enabler. If you're sufficiently liberal, it's like the old church people. If they were sufficiently Christian on Sunday, they could be absolutely vicious every other day of the week. You know, they had their cover, uh, their justification, their rationalizations. So liberalism in our lifetime has been pretty much a rationalization for co-option of, of good ideas and betrayal of worthwhile ideas. It's not an enabler of brave, strong, courageous human rights activity. I should be paying you, but I... <laughs> yeah. You know what I've learned, Steve? The people who pay you don't want that kind of response. Wow. I, I, if you don't mind, I, I'm going to leave that statement in because that's sure. a, kinda, a, a bit of a classic. Like, are you comfortable in talking about your lifetime as a journalist and how close the temptation of not fulfilling your journalistic ethics are? Like, how often were your journalist, journalistic ethical notions attacked, perhaps, over the years? I remember one time you told me, like, a little hint of a story that perhaps the, 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 the Clintons were very eager to kind of have you on their side or... Or, or, or at least to be supportive. Like, how, how much of that is a temptation for journalists? <laughs> well, obviously, you know, journalism is a racket, a business, a, a, an art form, a career, whatever you want to describe it as. I, I, I would answer your question this way. I don't think there's ever been a moment in my life where compromise and selling out was not in the air. <laughs> uh, it's always there. It's always there. You can always need more. You always want to advance. You always want to get a raise. You want to get a pat on the head. Uh, you want to do what others approve of. I can tell you, as a journalist, this is the most difficult period I've ever gone through, only because I'm trying to be objective about Donald Trump. And I have done this now for... <laughs> for four years. And man, I am vilified by it. I believe it's the main reason I had trouble at my current publication, Truthing. I think even the people I like and respect in our staff thought I was being a bit too objective. Right. You know, uh, I felt, you know, if we're going to be journalists, uh, I followed the model of Lawrence Ferlinghetti, keep an open mind, but not so open your brains fall out. And by that, I say, yes, I have subjective values. I have life experience. I come from a certain background. I care about people who come from my background. Uh, basically, you know, uh, exploited working class background. I, but I've also been successful. I've seen other people. I value their concerns and needs. Uh, so we all have an inner core of experience, commitment, values, and so forth. And those values are always challenged, tempted. I mean, temptation, that's the whole thing Christianity talks about, right? The, uh, so we always have temptations, you know? There's always something we want to buy or a trip we want to take or something we want to do or an element of security we'd like to have. Uh, and those don't have to be mean-spirited. So you're always doing this dance with opportunism. There's never a question about it. Uh, you're always, what, what do we mean by, what do we teach at schools? We teach careerism. 
We teach success. We try to put in a little dose of ethics, responsibility, accountability, so forth. But, you know, in the main, people are tend giving us a lot of money to send their kids to our schools in the hopes that they'll be more successful economically, not less so. And, and we live in a capitalist society. Uh, we're not living in a monastery here. We're living in a capitalist society in which economic success is the thing most highly valued, no matter what anybody ever tells you. Whatever they tell you, that's the reality, okay? That's what makes the system run. That's the fuel that drives the car, all right? And, uh, and that's it. So then, because we are humans, because we care about other people, because our eyes are open, we don't like to see homeless people dying on the street corner. We worry about that child of an immigrant family undocumented. What kind of education are they getting? And we also have a healthy dose of self-interest, enlightened self-interest that says, if they're not happy, maybe they'll make me unhappy, you know, spread of illness or violence or what have you. So there's a lot of stuff goes into the human experience swirling around. But it would be naive to suggest in our kind of economy, which is the one I mainly know, I've traveled pretty widely, but, you know, I'm a product. I came from the Bronx, you know, to L.A. I've been through the public school systems and I teach at a wealthy college now. I know the whole range. Uh, and I, I would say never have I had a time in any job where I didn't worry about holding on to my job. And I didn't worry about succeeding because, after all, I could rationalize success by saying it will give me more opportunity to do better work and be of more service. You have all those thoughts going to your head. But I'll tell you, the only, there's two things that kept me straight. One was the role model of my parents who were constantly to me an exhibit of the suffering that occurs when the society doesn't get it right. Okay, I saw it. I, I saw it on every level. I saw it with my mother, who, after all, never got her documentation straightened out till the day she died. So I lived with the problems of an undocumented immigrant. You know, I was free, white, and 21, as we used to say. That was the illusion. Uh, not betraying my parents has been about, you know, I don't know what, 95% of what has kept me uh, straight in some sense. And the other, was advice I got from people in this journalism business who I respected. And I don't remember who it was that first told me this, but it was keep have two or three balls in the air at any one time. And one falls to the ground, you still got the other two to work with. And, and I felt, felt, used that as a career model. The lesson, the model I followed is you can't do good journalism and let any institution own you. You always have to be in a situation where they need you more than you need them, or you're going to sell out. And towards that end, have two or three balls in the air at any one time, meaning have two or three ways of making a living. You know, whenever it is, whether it's like May 15th or June 1, you know, we're going to wake up and we'll be in this brand new world. And I want to kind of get a sense from Robert Shear. You don't think, well, I want to get a sense from you. Where are we waking up to? What are no, we waking we won't. up to? We won't. I'll tell you why. This is something you get from an 84-year-old guy. 
this is an illusion that has sustained America ever since the end of World War II. That good, that bad times are temporary. That bad times will lead to better times. This is what Trump, this snake oil salesman, is peddling. Will emerge stronger and better and blah, blah, blah. But bad times also introduce reality checks, a sense of limits, a sense of caution. And that's, that, that should be what you take from them. And I can tell you, as a kid who grew up in the Great Depression, I have never for a day, a day, and I only lived through, you know, as a, a young child, I was born in 36. My father got his job back, you know, somewhere in the early 40s when the war production got going. You know, uh, and, you know, but I, I never escaped, nor obviously did my parents, the notion that bad, really bad times economically and in terms of war were always on the offing. I, I never escaped that. Uh, I never escaped the idea that the secret police in the form of the FBI, which was harassing my uh, lefty working class neighborhood, wouldn't come back. I never escaped the idea of excessive government power, and I was informed in that concern by visiting a lot of more overtly totalitarian societies. I know how easily life can be snubbed out even in democratic societies. Uh, people can be framed, but I also I've been in societies where it's a lot easier to uh, kill people or prison them and so forth. So my life has been informed by what some of the people close to me define as paranoia, I think it's realism. I've always thought the human condition was at risk, uh, was potentially quite destructive, that human nature can be very kind and considerate. It could also be violent and evil. Uh, and so I personally, since you've made this a personal interview, never indulge uh, the security of the bad things being temporary and aberrations, and then better goodness arrives. Uh, that I, If I felt that way, I wouldn't have written the books that I've written that are mostly books of warning. Warning. Warning about the economic models, warning about risks of war and peace, the cost, and so forth. And it's a concern, a fear, an apprehension, a paranoia in the eyes of some, that I've kept alive, fresh in my brain, by going to troubled zones, including domestically. You know, I, I, I've written about poverty in America. I've written about immigration on the border. I've gone to war zones. I went to Egypt and Israel at the end of the Six-Day War. I did go to Vietnam. I went to Cambodia before the destruction of Cambodia, after, and then even uh, 16 years or much later, after I went back to North Vietnam, so I've revisited these areas. I went to Cuba. I went been a lot of places. I went to the South and, and so forth in the United States. And so, as a journalist, I've deliberately picked up story assignments that explore uh, the nastier side of life. And I've come to understand that the normal that everybody wants to return to is a normal for them or a fantasy for them, because sometimes it's not even what they live like. Uh, I think uh, that people uh, will never be the same in this country after this pandemic. 
I think arguments about the need for a progressive governance, meaning uh, stronger medical coverage for everybody, stronger sense of Social Security, <clears throat> uh, maybe guaranteed annual income, which I think is the, an idea embraced by Richard Nixon at one point. You know, first of all, the Democrats made the bills better. They added cautions and concerns and, you know, making it harder for people to reach people. But it's like Nixon going to China. <laughs> it took a cold warrior to say, we can live with communist China. I can go meet with Mao and we can cut a deal. It took a Republican, unfortunately, a, a capitalist, piggish, thuggish <laughs> Republican, just as it took a rich Democrat, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who's after all one of, from one of the more established families in the country, a man of privilege, to care about poorer people and make the case. And one thing that they're going to have to give Trump credit for in this whole thing he came out with the most important thing to say. The people who are hurting now are hurting through no fault of their own. Think of that, Stephen. If we, I can give you 20 reasons why it's your fault, okay? Anybody can. Anybody's fault. Why didn't you take a different major in college? Why didn't you work extra overtime four years ago? Why didn't you cut back your consumption and save more money? Why didn't you do this? Why aren't you smarter? Why aren't you blah, 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 right? That's the argument of the free market. That's the argument. Donald Trump shot that argument down the first day. He said, the people hurting now are hurting because of forces beyond their control. They are not responsible, and we have to bail them out. Now, that was a message that a social democrat in England would make. It was also a, a, a statement that Boris Johnson made recently, uh, and he explained why they're throwing a lot of money, or his lieutenants are into Oxford's vaccination program and everything, and why the National Health Service, suddenly this guy used to attack the National Health Service, is defending it because he was a patient. And, and the real lesson here is that Donald Trump, uh, whether for opportunistic or realistic reasons or what have you, or maybe he's a guy who's had to make a payroll and he knows without those people cleaning out the bathrooms in his hotels, there is no hotel and that you've got to take care of those people. Uh, but the fact of the matter is this country did the most enlightened, followed the most enlightened economic course by far in response to this pandemic that has been followed by any government since Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He said somewhere at the beginning of this that the Clintons reached out to me and I was somebody they looked upon kindly at one point. Uh, I was invited to the last White House dinner <laughs> and I sat at Bill Clinton's table. You know, there were a lot of people there who had given him a lot of money and were very influential senators and governors and everywhere, and I sat at his table, and he addressed me, and we were friendly. And I defended Bill Clinton when, not for his personal behavior, but I did feel the Monica Lewinsky thing, and yes, I very much felt she was abused, not just by him, but by the media. Uh, and there were a lot of issues. I had a lot of disagreements with Bill Clinton on policy and so forth. 
But I did feel that the impeachment attempt against Bill Clinton uh, was a destruction of our political system, that it should have been fought out in elections. Uh, it should not have been over uh, this method of getting rid of a president. And in my column, which I had a pretty big readership in an important newspaper, the LA Times uh, in those days was quite powerful, uh, I defended him. And to answer your question precisely, I went a bit further than I should have. Uh, I said that he will be remembered. I thought, meant to say as a very good president, I might have, if somebody looks this up, be embarrassed or discover I said he might be remembered as a great president. Okay. Now, that was going too far. Uh, Bill Clinton was not a great president, but he did bring us back to the center. He did take on the vast right-wing conspiracy. He did hold the center at a critical time, and he was, will be, and is remembered as a very good president. That doesn't mean he didn't do a lot of damage, a lot of damage. Now I'm channeling Trump. A lot of damage. <laughs> okay. Uh, Trump has done damage. He's done bad things. He's uh, created a hostile environment for many Americans and so forth. But I do think on two counts, if it just stopped right now, on two counts, let's say, unfortunately, I'm not asking for this to happen, but let's say, uh, well, even if he gets just gets defeated in the election or dies a natural death or whatever, I think he will be remembered as a very good president who stopped the forever wars, that he challenged this idea that even some human rights so-called people under Hillary Clinton's State Department and everything we're championing is our right to meddle throughout the world and continue being the policeman or the moral conscious or being, and yet bringing great misery to this world, great refugee flow, violence, and instability, and meddling where we have neither the knowledge nor the good. And I think Donald Trump will be remembered as somebody who, at least so far, put a halt to it and did not jump into every invitation for overthrowing an obnoxious dictator in, in uh, <clears throat> North Korea or elsewhere, uh, just as there was an obnoxious dictator in Libya that Hillary Clinton felt the need to overthrow and be very cynical about it after the guy was sodomized with a bayonet saying, well, we saw we came and he's gone, or we saw we, you know, we saw we conquered and we came and he's gone. Yeah. Uh, so I think Donald Trump will be remembered as this guy who really believed in international capitalism, who believed we could compete for world markets without the military, that we didn't have to own countries, that we didn't have to pay for all their armies, and rightly or wrongly, that we could produce things as well as anybody else and find the global market. And he used pretty rough economic means of tariffs and so forth, but he has a right to do that. And protect American workers. So I think he'll be judged effective in his international efforts so far. And I think on terms of his response to this crisis, he shifted course. He showed a concern for the well-being of ordinary people of every race, by the way, not just uh, crackers you know, to be derogatory or white Southerners or people who might vote for him. Uh, he showed, uh, you know, a feeling that the U.S. government has an obligation to create stability by taking care of the public. Uh, unfortunately, he doesn't include 
undocumented people sufficiently, but actually he hasn't been as punitive as I feared he would be so far. Uh, but, you know, with all his imperfections, the pandemic, the handling of the pandemic will be a big plus for his reputation because it involved very uh, strong use of government power to thwart uh, what the market would have judged in response to this medical crisis, uh, that you cannot let the market solve this problem and that you have to command the market to do the right thing, including the banks, which did something that Obama did not ask the banks to do, uh, stop throwing people out of their house and do at least withhold uh, or forestall mortgage payments uh, uh, and let people try to figure out how to handle uh, their credit allowances and other things like that. And uh, a, a fairly generous unemployment uh, payment. And to take your example, the small business activity and, and helping, you know, 50% of the economy, which is small business, stay on its feet, which is good for all of us, and doing it in, a, you know, without being uh, petty about it, without challenging, okay, here's the money, let's get it out there, and then let's see what happens. So yes, that would be my prediction. Is there, is there anything else that you would like to add? You know, is there any kind of closing statement that you want to say about the maybe the future maybe? Or like, you know, you kind of hinted that we talked about the future a little bit. Is there any other statement that you feel would be useful for our audience to hear? Yeah, okay. I ask myself, I'll ask myself the minute I get off this phone, why am I on the phone doing these kind of interviews? Because I have been doing more, even though my own publication was shut down by our publisher in her wisdom. Uh, nonetheless, I've been using this opportunity. I've beefed up my own website, uh, Sheer Post. Uh, A.J. Liebling, the great media critic, once said, freedom of the press is guaranteed to only to those who own one. I thought I owned half of Truth Dig. <laughs> Turned out not to be quite the case. But I do own Sheer Post, and so I quickly constructed a site where I can post things that I think people have a need to know or I want them to know or I want to share because I believe in education. You know, I believe that reason will prevail. I do believe people want to do the right thing. Uh, I knew this even as a kid. I wondered why we used to go on Saturday and watch the, the movie of the week, you know, whatever movie came out. They didn't come out that often. And then at some point it would get to the Alton Avenue Theater in the Bronx, and we'd go sit there and watch the cartoons and then watch uh, the movie, uh, the new movie. And they were pretty sappy. The message that came across in those post-war movies that I was watching was one of concern for people and that life could improve and that opportunity was there and that people cried when they watched movies where that was taken from other people. You know, when that was denied to them, there was, so it was a morality play. And it always hit me that most people were crying. And when one of my friends would be cynical about it, like screw them or who cares about them, all my other friends would dump on them. There, there was a common human cord. There was a, a connection, you know, and that you could even rely on that in, in some of the dumber more profane conversations you had with your classmates. You know, yeah, there was a lot of cynicism. There was a lot of roughness. 
uh, a lot of meanness. On the other hand, it always hit me, you could you could get you could do the tearjerker thing. You you could say, wait a minute, that could be your cousin, your mother, or that's not right. And the idea, you know, somebody would just say that. That's not right. That's not right. And it mattered. It mattered. And and so when I think, you know, what am I doing here? I'm 84 years old. And, uh, you know, even within the confines of my house, I could find something more enjoyable to do than talking to Stephen Frank, you know, French, sorry, French. I was thinking of Anne Frank, uh, Stephen French. You know, but really, why does one keep doing this? You know, you're not paying me. It's not going to sell. It's not going to pay my mortgage. I'm not going to do a damn thing. But actually, that's why I'm still a teacher. It's why I still do right. I actually have this idea that you can reach people. And more important than that, that I can still learn. I can still learn and I can still grow. And frankly, at this stage of my life, and by the way, this particular epidemic, I know, and my wife has a serious health condition. I've had a couple of heart operations, so I'm in the endangered category and of my age. Uh, on the other hand, I love life. <laughs> I think it's the only game, the only thing. The you know, I that's me. I'm a secular humanist. You know, damn it, I am. Uh, I think it's vital. I think it's great. You know, I looked at my grandchild last night and came apart. You know, uh, so yeah, uh, I think this is life affirming. Uh, I think it was George Bernard Shaw who said, uh, my life force can go on forever. It's just my body that's wilting. You know, uh, I think Bertrand Russell had a very similar idea about some kind of internal humanity, human spirit. Now, these were pretty smart thinkers. I interviewed Russell when he was 94, 10 years older than I am, I think, or 93, 94. He had an incredible life force going. Incredible. You and I interviewed Lawrence Ferlinghetti when he was turning 100. You know, uh, tape, I think we should get out more and more. He had incredible life force. Still does, still alive today. 101, you know. So to my mind, the basic answer to the human condition is we all want it. We all need it, and we all want it to continue, even if after we're gone, because it's the only thing we leave. It's the only marker. It's not going to be some gravestone that somebody's going to overturn anyway. You know, no, it's going to be whatever you contributed, whatever, even, even though I have no illusion, because I've seen my students not know who Bertrand Russell is. They certainly know, don't know who George Bernard Shaw was. So I know fame will not cut it. And not that I have such fame and your writing will not cut it. Your product will not, very rare exception very well. Orwell, because things get so miserable, seems to survive quite well, you know. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, there is only this one human coil that keeps us going. And even when you get down to your, your dotage, you know, I imagine those people living in those nursing homes frightened out of their mind. Can you imagine a more terrifying end-of-life scene that now a nursing home largely because of a lack of regulation, largely because of a lack of planning, largely because of indifference, 
to the human condition. Those are the death traps now, the, the end-of-life care, the nursing homes, and those people are being terrorized by this reality, you know, and yet what are they doing? They're not, they don't say, just give me the pill and get me out of here. I'm gone. Goodbye. Most of them, I can tell you, because I've been in intensive care wards quite a bit the last 10 years. I mean, not quite a bit, but, you know, I guess four or five days on two occasions uh, in the last, uh, less than 10 years. You know, I've been around people who are faced with death. I myself faced it. And I know there is a common human connection that survives in the most cynical of people, whether they are religious or not religious, whether they are smart or dumb by some standard of testing, whether they are wealthy or poor, uh, they hang on to this common human uh, coil is what it is, even though they know they're going to slip off it, you know, and not be remembered even by their own family after a certain point. The fact of the matter is, it is in the end of the day, the only thing, the only thing that gives life meaning is our common survival, common survival. And that, at the end of the day, is why I am certainly a democratic socialist.